Hi, I'm Tony Hines, and you're listening to the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. Well, back in the 18th century, interest rates held at around 4 to 5% at a steady rate throughout. And until very recently, interest rates have been, of course, much higher than they are today or even forecast to go. But we've had a steady period of very low interest rates for some considerable time now. Back in March 2022, the interest rate was just three quarters of 1%. And it went up in May that year to 1% and in June to 1.25 and in August to 1.75 and it's just risen to 2.25 and the Bank of England has forecast that it will probably rise to around 5% later in the year or early next year. So what's really happening with interest rates? The problem is of course the interest rate rise is coming at a time when other costs are actually rising fast and that's putting a lot of pressures on businesses and particularly those with loans. But the interest rates are nowhere near the eye-watering rates of 1979 when interest rates rose to 17%. So, grateful for small mercies. It was back in 2006 that interest rates last reached 5%, and they stayed above 5% only by a small margin during the period of the financial crash. In October 2008, interest rates fell to 4.75%, and then they gradually lowered. In the November of 2008, they went to 3%, in December that year to 2%, trying to stimulate the economy to keep growth in the economy, to keep demand up, to avoid a crash, and because of the banking crisis, of course. And in 2009, they fell to 1.5% in the January, then down to 1% in February, and then they fell probably for the first time ever, below 1%. And in March of 2009, 2009, they fell to just half a percent. And then it wasn't changed, that interest rate, until 2016, when it fell to a quarter of a percent. And then it gradually went back up slightly. In 2017, to half a percent. 2018, to three quarters of a percent. And then back down again, to a quarter of a percent. And so there's a bit of a yo-yo going on, but they hovered around somewhere between half a percent and one percent for some considerable time. So these were historically very, very low interest rates and people got used to them, of course. So some of the borrowing that was taken on was much higher than it would have been had interest rates have been higher at that time. And of course, the low interest rates push prices up. Prices of assets go up because there's now a lot of people willing to take on the loans to buy the assets at those higher prices, because they know that the money, the cost of money, is cheap. And so that's what has happened with interest rates. So even with these increases today, they're historically very, very low, and they're forecast by the Bank of England at this point to reach 5%, which again is historically very, very low. And I started this conversation by mentioning for most of the 18th century, interest rates hovered between or around 5%. It's probably a good idea for people to consider what the average rate of interest is going to be 
over time, particularly if you're taking on long-term loans, for example, like a mortgage. If it's over a 25-year period, the average rate you could bet is going to be somewhere between 5 and 7%. And if you look historically at the Bank of England's own rates of interest since 1694, the average rate of interest over the whole period is just over 7%. Now, interest rates have to take account of what's happening elsewhere in the world and not just inside a single country. And that's because the interest rate is linked to the exchange rate also, because people will demand pounds to invest in the United Kingdom if the interest rate is high. And if it's low and lower than the rest of the world, they'll actually sell pounds and buy other currencies to invest in other economies. And so you have to keep a careful eye on the rest of the world when you set an interest rate. And the problem with interest rates, again, is that it's a monetary policy and it can actually work against a fiscal policy. So if your aim is to lower taxes to stimulate demand and the interest rates go higher, they'll actually work against the stimulation of that economy. They'll dampen demand while the fiscal side, lowering taxes, will heat up demand. And that's a position where we have to carefully balance everything. Now let's turn our attention to supply-side economics and what supply-side economics actually means. Supply-side economics are policies that are designed to stimulate growth in the economy. And they do this by incentivizing investors to invest in that economy through lower taxes, giving tax breaks to investments and to capital. Consumers are said to benefit from supply-side economics, if it's done properly, by the increased output and productivity that the supply-side stimuli give to producers to operate more efficiently. And therefore, that should mean, in the medium to long term, that prices fall as output rises. And because of the productivity increases, the unit costs are falling and therefore consumers benefit through the lower prices. In the 20th century, Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher employed supply-side economics effectively to drive down wages and make it attractive to employ more people. So it drives down unemployment as people accept lower pay to do the jobs that were unattractive previously. And it also has the impact of creating more output as productive resources are employed back into the economy at lower cost. And that's all types of factors of production, land, labour, capital, all employed effectively to achieve operational efficiency and increase output and drive down long-term prices. In the labour market, if you lower wages and you make lower-paid jobs more attractive and you weaken trade union power to do that, and you might, in fact, get rid of minimum wage legislation, those sort of things would make the labour market more flexible. But you can see that to implement such policies could be a serious political problem for government in power because they'll be extremely unpopular and the opposition parties would make life very difficult for the government. Capital markets would be made more attractive as savings 
have to go up, interest rates would have to increase, competition between financial providers would have to take place and you can encourage entrepreneurs to take on more investment and you would look at removing monopolies. So many of the state-owned monopolies were set aside during the Thatcher era in the United Kingdom. But in fact, what we have now is capitalist monopolies and oligopolies in that place. And they would have to be challenged too. So for example, energy companies would have to be tackled to remove their monopoly powers. So it's not straightforward. And of course, labour productivity, if it were to increase, would demand big investment in education and training. Well, that's it for this edition, looking at supply-side economics. Hope you've enjoyed it, hope you've followed along, and I hope you can see why supply-side economics has become attractive to policymakers fighting inflation. And, of course, in increasing output and driving productivity upwards. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. I'll see you next time in the Chain Reaction podcast. So stop by, listen, and catch up on any episode you've missed. Bye for now. Chain Reaction Podcast was written, presented, and produced by Tony Hines. Hi, I'm Tony Hines. I'm here to tell you about the Chain Reaction Podcast, all about supply chain advantage. I've been researching and writing about supply chains for over 25 years. I wrote my first book on supply chain strategies in the early 2000s. Each week we have special episodes on particular topics relating to supply chains. Now we have a weekly news roundup every Saturday at 12 noon. All things impacting global supply chains in that week. So come and join us on the Chain Reaction Podcast. I look forward to seeing you there. I'm Tony Hines. I'm signing off. Bye for now.